You're listening to Contains Moderate Peril, an independent podcast about gaming, movies, and popular culture. Written and presented by Roger Edwards. Hello, and welcome to the Contains Moderate Peril podcast, episode number 182. I'm Roger, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Brian. Good day, everybody. This week we shall be discussing Star Wars fandom, because in many ways it's a microcosm of everything that is good and bad about contemporary fandom. Would you not say, Brian? It's a big one and it's been around for an awful long time, hasn't it? It has indeed, and it's also one that seems to provoke very strong opinions. It can be slightly polarizing at times. It's interesting, when we were initially setting up the show notes for this podcast, the first thing you wrote down is your sort of ongoing Star Wars project, Brian. Would you like to tell the listeners about that? Yeah, this is something that just started a week ago. So through a series of events, which I will not bore everybody with, I became aware of a list of the Star Wars movies and television shows, including the animated shows, that is in chronological order. And one of my issues with Star Wars, which is something that we've both grown up with, and we'll talk about that in a second, is that they started the damn thing with four, five, and six, right? Yep. <laughs> and then they came out with the prequels. And then eventually, uh, over a bunch of years after Disney bought it, they jumped to seven, eight, and nine. In between time, there's been all of these shows that all fit into this timeline. Like You can tell this was planned by how these things fit in. And I've never been exposed to any of those shows. So I had started watching The Mandalorian, which I heard good things about. I've seen about three episodes. It's actually very, very good. And it's that takes place on... It's people I've heard of. It's places I've heard of. Tatooine, all of these things, right? And I, start, I just start thinking, so where does this fit in? Like, I'm trying to figure it out myself, and I'm not that big of a fan. Anyway, long story short, I find this massive list, which uh, you can probably put in the show notes if you want to, on Reddit of all places. And I have started watching Star Wars in exact chronological order according to this list. And it makes so much more sense now. <laughs> it's not even funny. It's This is... Um, this is a revolution for me about Star Wars. The thing that actually makes this possible is that I upgraded my cell phone plan uh, recently, and I now have Hulu and Disney Plus. Well, Disney Plus happens to have all of, not all of this content, but the vast majority of this content that I'm going to be watching is in one place. That makes a massive difference. I've never in my life seen The Clone Wars. The Clone Wars is a crap ton of content, and it's, a, it's about a very specific time, and it fills, in, it fills in a lot of the holes. I can tell this already, only ever seeing like two episodes, but I'm like, oh, wow, this all fits. And once that light bulb went off for whatever reason, and I saw, oh my gosh, all of this is on Disney+, Plus. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this. So it may take months, but I'm trying to every night watch 
one or two TV episodes or one movie, whatever comes next on the list. And we will see how long this takes me. But um, for the first time in my life, I will actually have a good, hopefully solid understanding of Star Wars, um, something that was very important when I was young and was just cool, right? Yeah. That, that they have, over the years, they have built this out. There's obviously a master plan to it. They're obviously telling this story that spans decades. And I just, I've always seen it completely out of order, pieces, parts, missing huge chunks. Now I'm going to have it all in one place. And then whatever they bring out from now on, I'm going to be able to catch up with, and hopefully it'll make a lot more sense to me. The reason we wanted to use Star Wars as our sort of stepping stone into a wider discussion on fandom is because for me, it was a defining moment in my youth. I was born in late 1967. Star Wars actually got shown in spring 78 in the UK. So I was, I just had my birthday the, the previous December, so I was 10. In many ways, the perfect age to see Star Wars. And at the time, I liked Doctor Who. I liked James Bond. I enjoyed those things. I enjoyed the toys associated with them. But I, I didn't go out of my way. I didn't go out of my way to sort of pursue everything associated with Bond and Doctor Who, but then Star Wars came along and it just it just got me hook, line and sinker because it had an action-packed dynamic story with interesting, enjoyable characters. And then you had that universe, which you've only got to look at things in the Star Wars universe. They look used. They look like they've been created and used and it has that quality of seeming very real. I mean, I know some of the technology, when you start thinking about it, patently isn't, but everything is, it, it, it looks manufactured and produced by a company, and in some places it's older equipment, so it's worn and been patched and been adapted. It has this tangible feel of a living, breathing universe. That wasn't wasted on me, that sort of hooked me that sense of storytelling and and world building and the only time i've ever felt that sense of world building since is when i then started a couple of years later getting into the writings of jrr tolkien what about you brian he's the master isn't he um yeah star war i just remember i probably watched it about a year after it came out so probably 78 and my dad took me and my brothers. And I just remember sitting in that theater and it pops up and it says a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And it just kind of blew my mind as a kid, right? Like, like I knew from the news and my friends and stuff that they're pew, pew, shoot them up and lightsabers and spaceships and all of this stuff, this badass stuff that you think of as representing the future. And they're like, no, no, this happened a long time ago. I'm just like, whoa, that's cool. And just seeing all of those things, and it did, it felt like a real world. It still does, doesn't it? Like, yes. this isn't, it's not clean, it's not perfect. I just felt like, like it clicked, and they had all the toys, and so we would buy all of those and play with them and imagine, you know, we were Han Solo and, and, and all of these things. It was just so much fun. So massive, massive, massive part of my life. 
And you've hit upon possibly one of the most genius aspects of Star Wars and its wider impact on popular culture, and that's the marketing, the toys. It ties into that urge to collect, which I think is something that manifests itself quite strongly when, you, when you're sort of relatively young. You look at the back of the packaging and they show you the range of the other products. Yep. I'm buying Marvel comics that are UK reprints of US ones, so they would still have adverts in them that were totally irrelevant to the UK. But you would suddenly see that in the U- US there were additional Star Wars figures that weren't available by the company that was licensed to manufacture them in the UK. And, and the next thing you know, you, you're going around to collector's fairs, which in the 70s and early 80s were real niche market things. And suddenly you're a kid going up there with a jar full of saved up pocket money because there's some guy running a stall who's managed to get a couple of imports Star Wars figures brought in from the US and he's selling them at 20 quid a pop which was a fortune back then yeah my I, I remember on weekends uh, we would get our allowance and I, keep in mind I'm like 11 12 years old uh, my allowance was two dollars a week and we would go to Sears and in the basement of Sears was the, was the toy department and they would have this giant right off the end of the escalator was this giant Star Wars figure shelving display. And Star Wars figures cost $1.99 at the time. And my dad would cover the tax out of the goodness of his heart because <laughs> it would end up being $2.07. It was 4% tax. I remember this stuff. I sort of got I remember this. And my brothers and I would take our allowance and we would choose one of the ones we didn't have and we would talk amongst ourselves to make sure we all got different ones and we would go up to the counter and he would give us the money and make us pay for it and then we would on the way back home have him torn out of the thing and play with them um did you have matchbox cars in the uk certainly did okay so at the time matchbox cars were a big thing which we also collected and played with and they had this carrying case that um, you could put your Matchbox cars in. It held, I don't know, 20, 30 cars, whatever. Yeah. And it was almost like a lunchbox type thing. Yeah. Well, guess, guess what fit perfectly in that carrying case? Star Wars figures. There you go. So we would, all of my friends, we would even go take them into school sometimes, bring in this Matchbox or Hot Wheels. I'm sorry, one of the two, Hot Wheels or Matchbox, whichever it was. And we would unsnap this carrying case, and it would be full of our Star Wars figures, and never any duplicates, and we would play with them. Fond memories, I'm telling you. Indeed. And this is the thing that sort of made me aware of sort of the nature of fandom, because, as I said, I like Doctor Who, and they used to release paperback books, which were novelizations of Doctor Who stories. And I used to go to a shop fairly close to where I live. It was a science fiction specialist bookshop used to go with my dad and he'd come out with a, an armful of Isaac Asimov and whatnot and I'd come out with these Doctor Who novelizations. Happy days. And um, I used to enjoy collecting those but, you know, I wouldn't worry about it if I didn't have them all. It would be like, I'll just save and get some next time. But Star Wars 
change something because it sort of developed this sort of cult of enthusiasm around it. And what people have to remember, and young people, and by that I mean people under 20 who are getting into Star Wars or into Star Wars in a moment, is in the 70s and early 80s, the, the, the films came out, they'd stay in the cinemas for a crap ton of time by the standards of films. But then there would be a time when they went away. And the home video market only sort of started picking up by the, I'd say, about 83, 84. And also, it took a while for the home video market to establish itself before CBS Fox actually decided to release the Star Wars trilogy on VHS beta tapes. So there was a period of time where, although you loved all things Star Wars, it wasn't available. You had to wait for your, some television network in the US and the UK to pay an absolute fortune to actually buy the rights to show that. And I can remember when ITV in the UK got the rights to show Star Wars for the first time, and apparently they, they virtually crippled themselves financially to get these rights but then they knew if they showed it in the run up to Christmas the advertising revenue that they get would pretty much put them back you know put that put their balance sheet back in the the good graces with the accountants but yeah there, there was a large period of time where you'd be between Star Wars films and it's like huge all you could do was read the novelization read the comics the merchandise from fan clubs etc it's not like what it is nowadays is it Brian? no they so you're this is like cable tv was something we had starting in the 80s in my household mm -mm. so this predates cable tv believe it or not but what i remember about star wars specifically is so we had all the broadcast channels and that was it that was our television but they would, um, every once in a while, show a documentary of some sorts about Star Wars, like the making of. Yes. Like, I remember the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the snow, the hoth, and all of that. And they, they had a documentary that they showed on regular TV. I don't know which channel, I don't remember, that we watched. And it got us pumped. And then we would go to the grocery store, and they would have magazines and they would have Star Wars magazines. And we would buy the Star Wars magazines and just consume them. Look at all the pictures. I probably didn't read the articles, but you know what I mean? Like, yep. and, and it would talk like, I, I actually have a fairly good knowledge of how episode four, the very first one to be released, was made. All of the special effects were done because I've seen the behind the scenes of that as a child. Yep. That was part of the experience was being blown away in the theater by, oh my God, look at what they did in this trench and these freaking things flying across and these amazing sounds. And then watching a documentary a couple months later, that's like, here's how we did it. And then we all wanted to be filmmakers, right? Yeah. Star Wars is the first big fandom I think I ever became aware of in my life. There was probably other fandoms before that. Star Trek comes to mind. Star Wars is, I believe, the first huge fandom that I was ever even aware of and also a part of. Another important 
fact that needs to be sort of made clear for for people who are you know younger than ourselves, us being mature gentlemen in our in our middle fifties. Uh, there was no internet. There was not this machine that reported and regurgitated information about everything as it happened. So Star Wars was successful. It was announced that they were going to make a sequel. And then you had a vacuum of information for two and a half years. It was just, we're making a film. It will be ready when it's ready. Shut up and wait for it. And that's how it used to work. And therefore, when this film got released, you know, the sequel to, to at that time, the most commercially successful film of all time. People were totally stoked and hyped and, and up for it, and it did live up to expectations. It, it's worth pointing that out. Sequels so often disappoint or fall into the trap of trying to repeat what's been done already. And The Empire Strikes Back is a superb sequel, and for many Star Wars fans, and for just non-Star Wars fans, just for film fans per se, it's considered the best of the original trilogy. I was at junior school when Star Wars was released, and then by the time that Empire came out, I had moved up to senior school. I was very fortunate that, obviously, then Return of the Jedi was 83, because then round about that time, you're then starting to move away from being a child to a teenager. And let's just say politely, other concerns come into the equation. And um, it's interesting because I enjoyed all, th all three Star Wars films, really went all in on the fan culture around it. And then when it finished in 1983 and the trilogy, for all intents and purposes, ended, it was like, cool, okay. And then there was no more Star Wars for a very, very long time. Massive amount of time, actually. Yes. And then round about 1996, there were noises coming out of various insider sources that it's coming up to the 20-year anniversary of Star Wars and Lucas is going to reissue them and then you had the special editions. And then the, the, the fantastic thing is, by then, is I've grown up, I've got a job, I've got married, I've had a child. And then it's this... Passing the baton to a young generation, because as soon as my son was old enough, it's like, you've so got to watch Star Wars. And he did. And he still loves it to this day. And I, I, I just, it's very difficult to express in words that sort of sense of continuity. I can remember the special editions got released and they got released to, within about six months of each other. So within literally a year and a bit, all three of the original Star Wars films have been re-released 1997 into 1998 as the special editions. And I went back to virtually the same movie theatres that I'd seen the, them originally with my son and watched them again. And uh, that, that, that's, not, that's not something that you get to do with everything. That your life doesn't usually offer that amount of intergenerational continuity. No, it, it's, you know, 
it just underscores the fact of how important this is to to so many people. And and it it's almost like this is going to be a timeless thing, I think. I unless they really screw it up somehow. I think, you know, Star Wars, probably Star Trek, probably Lord of the Rings. I I'm sure that, you know, Doctor Who's been around for even longer than all of those, right? Well, not Lord of the Rings books, but you know. Yeah. Um so there's just we just have these enormous franchises for lack of a better word that are appearing to be essentially timeless they will continue marching on generation through generation and i think that's important you know you have those memories of you and your son and and more importantly he has those memories of doing that with you right and then he will have children and maybe make those same memories with them and it goes on and on and on and i think that's pretty uh, special. But it is interesting because although I think aspects of the of these franchises are timeless and certainly the fans' unboundless love is timeless. I do think sometimes things have gone awry and that's down to the people who are making these things because they're in the middle of it. And I think sometimes one of the biggest problems with popular franchises is you're in the, the you're in the epicenter of this adulation and love, and sometimes I think you can't see the woods for the trees because I would level that criticism on the prequel trilogy, which came out 1999, 2001, 2003. Because obviously, as soon as we heard that Lucas was deciding he now wanted to do prequels and that he'd hinted in the past that he wanted to do that and that the technology was at a stage where he could see his creative vision realised, everyone was like, yeah, we're on board, go and do it. And then he went and did it. And I can't say I was 100% happy with the results. There are some very good things that come out of the... Um, the three prequel movies, but some of the dialogue and the character exposition is, shall we say, very heavy-handed, clumsy, and unnuanced. And to my mind, I mean, opinions will vary, this is a classic example of when a person has become so famous, no one seems to have the courage to say, Whoa, you put the brakes on there, George. I think that's a bridge too far. No, don't have them do that. Maybe you might want to tone it down a bit. And this seems to happen to filmmakers, musical artists. They sometimes need a voice of reason and they don't necessarily have one provided and then it falls into excess and self-indulgence. I don't know how you feel about the... The um the prequels, Brian, but um you know I, I I am I have mixed feelings to them. That, my friends, is how you get a situation like Jar Jar Binks happening. <laughs> um, so now we're getting to the crux of why we're talking about this. Actually, yeah, I I don't want to get too much into my opinions. I will just say overall, I was just as excited for one, two, and three as every other Star Wars fan. And I was probably, for whatever reason, more disenfranchised than the large number of disenfranchised Star Wars fans after those three came out. To the point where I drifted away from the fandom. 
And I drifted away from the fandom far to the point where I would say I wasn't even in the fandom anymore. I actively dislike Star Wars still a little bit because of those prequels. And also because I think it's getting overexposed and some other things. Um, and one of the reasons I am undertaking this project, as I'm calling it, is to try to get back into that fandom because I miss it. And I, I keep thinking maybe there's something I'm missing because I haven't seen the animated movies and the animated TV series and the Mandalorian and now they've got this book of Boba Fett and they have this Andor thing, you know, all of this stuff is coming and, all, but all of this stuff has been out for many, many years that I have just missed because I just was like, screw this. I hate it. I hate what they did to this thing that I loved. So I'm done with it. Um, so hopefully this will work. <laughs> I think you've hit the nail on the head. I, I think it was a question of there was this wilderness period where there was no Star Wars because the original trilogy had been made and there was nothing else, nothing new coming out. And then he did this trilogy, despite criticism of it, it did financially exceedingly well, which then opened a floodgate for things like Star Wars, The Clone Wars and some of the other animated shows. And... I was at a point where I think, because I, I find certain aspects of the um, episodes one, two, and three so jarring, I think I turned my back on Star Wars because I just felt maybe, oh, this is a classic example of something that you enjoy when you're young and you're undiscriminating, and now that you're an adult and you've got greater critical faculties, it's not as good as possibly what... I remember it to be, and I therefore drifted away. You know, it's not as if there's a shortage of other things, because one of the great things about Star Wars is it made science fiction and fantasy financially successful, and it therefore made television and cinema far more disposed towards doing that sort of content. So by the early 2000s, it's not as if we were starved of alternative fantasy and science fiction franchises to replace the gap in our lives that was created by the disappointment in Star Wars. And I hate to say it, as adults, you know, you have the means to explore other options, don't you? Yeah. Like, as a child, you don't necessarily have those means, and, you know, I think you maybe you go to school and you're much more influenced by your friends and the people around you. As an adult, you can kind of do whatever you want. And I just, uh, I, you know, the first movie in particular, um, number one, I just rewatched. I, I re I've rewatched one and two and then some of the Clone Wars stuff because that's how they fit into chronological order. And they could have just not done the first movie, in my opinion, and it would still be fine. When Disney announced that they were going to buy the rights of Lucas, I was quite interested in that because by that point, Disney had sort of reinvented itself for about the umpteenth time. And um, it had shown itself adept at handling franchises. And um, it was obvious that Lucas had possibly, he felt himself that maybe he had strayed too far with his um, 
tinkering, shall we say, with Star Wars. Certainly, fans were unhappy. Interesting, the internet was about when episodes one, two, and three were being produced and released, and there was a great deal of discussion. By the time that Disney came along and bought Star Wars, you know, the internet culture was clearly established. And what I found fascinating was... So Disney are going to do a new Star Wars film. Disney are going to do a trilogy of films that come after Return of the Jedi. Disney are now slowly letting us know who's going to be directing, who's going to be writing, who's going to be appearing in it. Everyone's getting stoked. Everyone's getting pumped. Everyone's getting really, 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 really excited. And then we get a remake slash soft reboot of effectively A New Hope. And... It wasn't really anything new. It was a bit of a fan service and it sort of took certain story elements and developed them and they were quite interesting. But the actual central storyline, it's just a retread of, of the original Star Wars movie. And, you know, fans were making themselves heard and were very, very vocal in their dislike. And then you had the second one, The Last Jedi, yeah. which dared to be different. That dared not to just do what had been done 12 months before in, 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 in the um, seventh movie. It dared to do something different. And that's when, oh my gosh, I know fans can be unhappy campers when they want to be but i have never ever ever seen such coordinated and concentrated vitriol because effectively someone didn't make the story that was going on in the fan's head and that to me was a sea change as far as i thought fandom was a source force for good i thought fandom was bringing people together enjoying a shared experience and then you basically just had a movie studio held hostage by a group of rogue fans yeah and i think george rr R. martin might have something to say about that very subject game of thrones books coming out at a glacial pace and people are getting militant about it mm -hmm. i just earlier mentioned how much i love episode four Mm -hmm. Therefore, you might think I would really like Episode 7. Mm -hmm. I hate it. I sat there. I didn't really know anything about it going into it other than whatever. It's Star Wars. It's new Star Wars. New Star Wars is good, in my opinion, for the most part. And I, I just remember watching this going, wait a second. This is a new hope all over again. And by the end of it, I'm like, why did they do that? I don't want to see the movie I saw in 1978 or whenever I actually saw it. I want to see a new Star Wars movie, right? Yeah. Like, it kind of angered me a little bit. Like, why? I, like, I get why they're doing it. It's a fan service, and they're trying to make everybody happy, but it had the exact opposite effect. And then The Last Jedi brought that unpleasantness, and suddenly you've got a group of people who basically saying... Star Wars was made for us. We don't want people of ethnicity in it. We don't want women in it. We don't want these sort of storylines in it. 
there was the hubris of creating an online petition to demand that the studio remake the film. Now, let's just take a moment to sit and reflect upon that. When you're a fan, you are enthralled by something that is made and produced by somebody else. Your support and your dollar is important to the people that make that product. But at the end of the day, you are not, by dint of being a fan, on the executive committee making decisions about how that product is actually made. And uh, I was just absolutely flabbergasted by the whole debacle. It, it, it was just too much like Gamergate. It was too much like so many other modern debacles where people have just set themselves up as gatekeepers. And in the moment something doesn't go the way they want it to, all the toys are thrown out the stroller and... Oh, it's, it's just so unpleasant. And it did have an impact because when they finally brought out the third movie, which wrapped up the storyline and, you know, oh, look, the Emperor Palpatine's still knocking about the place. Oh, well, it was the whole film was just such an utter contrivance and fan service. It was for me, it was an unsatisfactory conclusion and I was flabbergasted that Disney fumbled the ball so much but then they didn't seem to have a plan they didn't write three films they made wrote a film and then just basically said to the next director pick up where that one took off you know how can you have any continuity and he joined up thinking with an approach like that I I was just shocked shocked at a studio with possibly the biggest intellectual property in existence, could just fuck it up that badly. Kind of mind-boggling, isn't it, in a way, because they have all the money they ever need to produce something good. They have the experience. They have the talent. They can buy whoever they want to help them, right? And that's what we got. Like, really? Maybe sit down for a few weeks and think things through before you start? I don't know. It's a, an intellectual property that you're going to treat with some degree of respect, and you're going to make sure that you do your planning and that you have a coherent strategy. And for me, you've got three films that don't really hang together at all well. No. No, and maybe that's where they listen too much to the internet. You know what I mean? And they, oh, we were going this way. Okay, swerve over this way. Oh, no, now they didn't like that. Swerve back over, you know, I don't know. It just, it seems like they should have had a plan and stuck to it. And I don't, I feel like they didn't, whether that's the truth or not, I'm not sure. But the weird thing was, the original plan was a Star Wars film every two years. And in the intervening year, you do a spin-off film. Yep. And they got as far as Rogue One. And Solo. Now, I don't know if you've seen both of those. I think they're very, very good. I think I, I've seen Rogue One for sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've seen Solo. The whole plan got just scuppered because they brought Solo forward. They, could, they didn't want to have too long a gap between films. And, and the classic yeah. example of just killing your market by just saturating it. And, you know... After uh, Solo did not perform well at the box office, but that's their own fault. That's marketing. 
the fact that you you employed a pair of experimental filmmakers and then didn't like what they did, so you then basically brought in a dependable pair of hands like Ron Howard and said, make us a film, run and save our bacon, which he did, and he did a very good job, if you ask me. And uh, it was, again, just utterly, utterly fumbled. And I honestly thought at that point, that's it, no more Star Wars. Star Wars is done. They're now going to pull it out of the public arena, as it were, and focus on, obviously, the MCU and all the other franchises that they've got. Too much Star Wars. They've, they've over-egged the pudding. They've blown it. And then they went shit or bust and produced The Mandalorian, which, for me, was an amazing turnaround. And suddenly the, the, the shoe dropped. Is it a question of this particular franchise is better suited to the medium of episodic television than massive films. Going back to my project, me sitting down a week ago and watching the first three episodes of The Mandalorian is what prompted this entire episode right here. Because I have been like when seven, eight, and nine were coming out, and when Rogue One and when Solo came out, I was kind of begrudgingly watching them, but it wasn't a priority in my life. And I, you know, and now I'm watching this Mandalorian going, wow, this is really good. Wow, this is actually really good, just like everybody said. Holy crap, this is really good. Now, all of a sudden, I don't know why. I just want more Star Wars, which is why I'm doing this thing I'm doing. Isn't that funny? And it's probably not that great, but I love the fact it was, what is it, 45-minute episode somewhere in there. They're as long as they need to be. Yeah, so, so essentially, again, I've only seen three and I've stopped, and I'm going to, whenever it comes back up in my chronological order, I'll be watching it again. Super excited about it. But I'm just like, I like this story. I like finding out more about these bounty hunters. Um, it's, it, again, it takes place on places that I know and it references people that I know. I like everything about this. This is what I like. And I like the fact it's not a two hour movie that I have to sit here and suffer through the slow parts. Yes. Because there's not a lot of slow parts. When, when you do episodic storytelling in that way, they have to cut all the fat out for the most part. Yeah. You have action scene, story exposition, little bit of a curveball thrown in, credits roll. See you this time next week. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm nodding off having to go to work tomorrow and I want to watch the next one. And I want to watch the one after that in spite of being exhausted and having to go adulting. So it's good. I certainly think that the people that they've got working on The Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett. I mean, John Favreau, show running, writing, directing, bringing in people who've, who've worked from the animated shows as well. People who seem to have a better grasp of what it is that works about Star Wars. I actually think if it, if it hadn't been for that final roll of the dice, we'll do The Mandalorian in an episodic TV format. I think the franchise might have been screwed forever, basically, but they seem to have found format that is beneficial for the show. 
because I'm now going to move on to another aspect of Star Wars that some people might not like and they might not like to hear. Star Trek had soul, philosophy, and an intellectual element to it. Star Wars, the original three films, are enjoyable. They are classic examples of high adventure, space opera even. And I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion, but they are very derivative in what they draw upon. The, the main thing that's original in Star Wars is the style and the presentation. It's, they're, they're fun films, but I don't think anyone's going to argue that Star Wars, from a sort of critical point of view, is a major cinematic achievement other than its its seismic pop culture ramifications. No one's going to say, oh, the cinematography is, is, is exemplary in Star Wars. It's, for, it's perfectly acceptable. Do, do, do you see the point that I'm making? It's yeah. a milestone, but it's not a milestone for the same reason as Seven Samurai. Star Wars to science fiction movies is what professional wrestling is to sports. There you go. And that's not meant in a negative way at all. No. And I think possibly Star Wars fans maybe in their heart of hearts know that. And hence there is a requirement to handle the IP in a particular way. Star Trek is um, far more optimistic about the future and what it's attempting to do as it explores this fictitious universe where... Star Wars draws more on established ideas. You know, it, it's drawing upon Greek mythology. It's drawing upon Western mythology. You know, in many ways, Star Wars, particularly in The Mandalorian, it is basically a Western, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, what I like, so, so Star Trek, when I watch it, and I love Star Trek, we both do. Star Trek, when I watch it, I'm like, that's the future I want for humanity. That's how I think about it. When I watch Star Wars, I go, yeah, that's probably the future we're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> right? Basically, they're almost booking. Yeah. And, and I love them both. I, I really do. Yeah. But yeah, I just, the grittiness of Star Wars and the, the tiredness of the people and the places, and it just, it feels like something that could actually happen, whereas Star Trek, as much as I love it, it almost feels like this unattainable goal. Yes. They have different influences. I mean, I, I, lots of people who grew up with Star Wars, and you, you touched upon this, have genuinely felt driven to then go and involve themselves in the television and film industry because of what they saw and because they wanted to know how it was done, or because they had a, a love of building models or filming things on a Super 8 camera. So Star Wars has certainly had a massive creative in, influence as far as influencing people to go into the film industry, or maybe to draw and paint and, and do something creative like that. But I watched that documentary recently, um, Shatner in Space about Bill Shatner on the old Blue Origin rocket that he did last um, October. Yeah, how was that? It is 
a hideous Amazon infomercial, but it's saved by the absolute genuine heart and soul of William Shatner. Really? Yes. He is uh, very, very interesting. In that. This is a man who, and this is so relevant to Stoudham, he got into a TV show. It was a gig. It proved quite popular. The gig went away. He actually, his marriage fell apart. He was broke. He was sleeping in the back of his truck in 1969-70 when people were walking on the moon. And he's looking up, thinking, they're up there and I'm hitting rock bottom. And then Star Trek grew through syndication. It came back. Shatner struggled, struggled with his relationships with his work colleagues. They've, they've, he's been accused of being an egomaniac. The man's had a journey, and I think now he's at a point in life where he has outgrown his negative qualities, and he is a philosopher and a gentleman and a force for good in the world. And he walks into the Blue Origins headquarters where they've built this cons cons you know, commercial rocket and virtually every member of staff there, from the cleaners, the admin staff, the catering staff, the scientists, the software developers, they're all there because they watch Star Trek and they believed in what it had to say and because they treat him as some sort of icon and, and cultural touchstone. And he walks in into the main central lobby of, of the Blue Origin Centre and as well as pictures and memorabilia of classic NASA astronauts, it's filled with Star Trek memorabilia. And there's a huge model of the Enterprise. And the, you watch him. The man is humbled by the fact that people have done something because he had some inspiration and something to tell them that touched them. And they then wanted to take that forward. It is. Quite profound. I was quite surprised. So essentially a real-life redemption arc. Very much so. You know what? I'm going to watch it now. I saw it pop up in my feed, yeah. and I'm not a big fan of that particular person, although I enjoy the role that he played and what it represents. Um, I'm going to watch it now. That's you know the, the difference, I think. Um, Star Wars inspires fandom in a different way to, say, Star Trek or The Lord of the Rings or insert other very, very big franchise. And, and, and that got me thinking. You know, some forms of fandom grow with you as the franchise grows or your familiarity with the thing that you are enamored with grows. My dad read me The Hobbit when I was a child. 78, 79 was about the time I started reading The Lord of the Rings. In fact, it was the animated film that actually got me to pick up Tolkien's book, which I read. And then as I got older, I waded through The Silmarillion and that was difficult. But then a decade later, I came back to it. And at that point, Christopher Tolkien was editing all his father's old notes and source texts. And then you had this slew of books that are just Middle Earth minutiae. Yep. And 
I, as they were coming out, I was at an age to understand them and appreciate them. And I wouldn't have been able to do that as a child. So again, it's this sort of, I'm growing with the franchise and my fandom is evolving. Yeah. And then there are other things you like as a kid that you grow out of, like Power Rangers. No, I still like Power Rangers. It doesn't include Bulk and Skull. Don't want to watch it. <laughs> I wonder what that difference is. It, it's, it would be, it, I mean, we can never figure this out. But I wonder what it is that makes something like a Star Wars um, such a profound and long-lasting fandom for people. Whereas other ones, which seem as big and as popular at the time, end up just kind of petering out over time. Yes, they are transient. Maybe that's a future episode that we could explore some of those topics because I, I find it fascinating. Why do what is one thing stick and another doesn't? What what's the secret sauce? It's also interesting the way certain franchises I won't say lose their way because the the bean counters would just say I don't care about whether people liked it or not. Did it make the viewing figures and did it earn us some money? So there's lots of ways of judging whether something is successful I would argue although I've enjoyed watching Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard they, the new shows don't follow the original enthusiastic optimistic ethos of the original shows the dark nature of contemporary Trek for example reflects the dark nature of the times that we live in so I haven't seen this new crop at all uh-huh. um, it that disappoints me because what makes Star Trek Star Trek to me is that optimism. And I'm just wondering if you take the optimism out of Star Trek, you essentially have Star Wars, right? <laughs> like Yeah. That 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 worries me a little bit about like like if you injected the optimism of Star Trek into Star Wars, it would be a completely different thing, wouldn't it? Yes. I certainly think fandom moving away from paper-run fanzines and little small local area groups and little fan conventions held in different states and different countries in the 70s and 80s. The internet then comes along and changes all that. All of a sudden, fandom is interconnected and joined up and, and, and people can clearly express their likes and dislikes which in some respects is very liberating, but in other respects is, is not so. Because, well, we've talked about Star Wars predominantly. There's been a great deal of negative fandom associated with that because people didn't like the direction it was going in. That's also happened with Discovery. I hear it's happening with Doctor Who somehow. Yeah. Yes. yes, indeed. A lot of people, frankly, weren't happy with the Doctor becoming a woman. It's been argued quite cogently that maybe the, the, the material that has been provided hasn't been the best material. Therefore, you combine those two factors and the haters now feel that they've got a watertight case that it was a bad idea to begin with. And uh, yeah. there is, you know, it's, it's very difficult to stress to people how important this show is for the BBC 
and it's competing in a world market. So they have to get this right. We've touched upon this earlier. It's that mindset that by being a fan and supporter and spending money, that somehow this vicariously makes you on the committee, which it doesn't. I mean, it's important to listen to fans, but fans are not the be-all and end-all. And I'll give you an example. They made the World of Warcraft movie, Duncan Jones. Yep. Now, there are lots of World of Warcraft fans numbered in millions but you need those to come out and see the movie and even they alone are not sufficient in number to make such a project financially viable and anyone involved in the movie industry will know that grasp that quite quickly so what you then have to do is take up an intellectual property that's loved by group a and you have to make it accessible to group b and therein lies the problem. And it's a very, very fine line to walk. Broadly speaking, I would say that Peter Jackson managed to get movies out of The Lord of the Rings that hit enough beats to keep fans happy, but made people who didn't understand able to sit in a cinema and follow the films. I personally like the World of Warcraft movie, but there again, I didn't have any World of Warcraft baggage. And it might interest people to know that somebody who's played the game for a decade and a half has never seen it. It proved the point that they, you, know, you cannot just do something exclusively as a fan service or else you're taking a very big risk. And if you want other examples of fan services, there's the final Star Wars movie and there's Ghostbusters Afterlife that I saw recently. Oh, how was that? It's an entertaining film. I'll say that specifically for DJ Pimp Daddy. <laughs> it is entertaining, but all it does is a, a bunch of people have meticulously studied the original Ghostbusters film and they've written a list and said, we must reference this, we must recreate this, we must do a variation of this. It is an entertaining, but ultimately contrivance that is just there to be a fan service and to pass the, the, the baton to a younger generation and say, here's some nice new characters. They will be the people featuring in the next Ghostbusters film. Okay? It's, it's fun, but it doesn't do anything original. I think that is the problem. I think that's the problem. Fans maybe wield a little bit too much power nowadays. The internet means that their excesses can spill out in all sorts of unpleasant ways. And it spoils it for other people, Brian. It's like in the past, you might have been happy to say, oh, I like so-and-so, I'm a fan of that. And then 10 years later, you're about to say it to someone that you're talking to and you think, oh, no, better not, because they've now got, you know, fans of, of X have a particularly bad reputation. Yeah, so... A lot of times we've been finding the vocal few drown out the majority, don't they? Yes. And it's also something that possibly has been too commodified. And it's like some people now feel that they've been thrown out of their own party. Yeah. It's unfortunate, isn't it? Yes. <laughs>
Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up episode 182 of the Contains Moderate Peril podcast. There are our thoughts on fandom, fandom specifically associated around Star Wars, but we certainly dipped our toes in several other topics. Obviously, there's a lot more to say. We would welcome any comments, so do feel free to get in touch and let us know if you feel that we've um, done a good, bad or indifferent job covering the subject, or if there's any points that you feel that we've missed out that you'd like to make yourself. We shall be back in a week's time with another show and another topic of discussion. Until then, thank you very much indeed for listening. So goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to Contains Moderate Peril. For more information, visit ContainsModeratePeril.com and follow us on Twitter at Moderate Peril.